0: Welcome, my name is Nick Craig, and this is the Leading from Purpose podcast. My guest today is Harry Hudson. I've known Harry for over probably 25 years, when both of us had a lot more hair than we do today. Uh, Harry is probably one of the world's experts in the experience and challenges of how do you lead in crisis. He's worked in a range of companies over the last 25 years from jet engine, uh, manufacturers to oil and gas to world-class uh, leadership development organizations. So he's seen the whole spectrum of what it means to be effective at leading in challenging times. What we want to do today is uh, have a conversation with Harry on two topics. what is his journey around purpose and its impact, but the second is his area of expertise leading from crisis. He is actually the author of a fabulous book which I have right here in front of me called Navigating Organizational Crisis and it is a fabulous book and a read especially in the moments that we're sitting in now with the coronavirus and all the things that come along with it. So Harry thanks for being here.
1: Thank you Nick, good to see you.
0: Super. So Harry let's start with you and let's start with your purpose. So would you be willing to share with us with what your purpose is?
1: I'd be happy to because it uh, it's a kind of purpose statement you wanna share because it is, it's, it's simple, it fits me, and it applies to uh, what I, how I work in the, how I live in the world, how I work in the world. And my purpose is this, I wanna, my purpose is to uh, help people get out of their own way. Uh, it has deep meaning for me and I can tell stories around it and it has deep implication for me in terms of how i live and what i do and where i go from here i'm happy to fill in the blanks
0: yeah so harry where's where do those words come from for you because you know each of us has a unique purpose and where most of us it comes out of our journey in life and so where where does this where do those words come from for you well they they, they popped out
1: nick and and uh, uh i would say under your mentorship under your guidance and one of one of your mini workshops. I mean, that's, that's where it came from. I mean, I wasn't walking around saying I've got to get myself a, you know, a, a, a pithy purpose statement today. I wasn't doing that. Um, but the nice thing about this purpose stuff is that when you land it, it it's right there. It's been waiting for me.
0: Hmm. So how does that fit for you? Because you know, many people have very different purposes and yours is unique to you. So well, how does that purpose statement make sense for you? Well, first of all,
1: I bet there are at least fifty thousand people that have the same purpose statement, but it doesn't matter because mine is mine and has my meaning. So it's not a it's not a race toward uh, try to be unique. Um, it's it's to it's to dig deep and to say, well, really, what what works best? Um, and I would say uh, when, I, when I dig deepest, uh, I my my mom who died two years ago uh, had told me many times in my adult life that when I was growing up. Um, she thought I could do anything. She just believed in me that much that I could do anything. Well, when it turns out, uh, I couldn't do anything. And in fact, I stumbled a little along the way. I said, well, where is that? You know, what is that all about? And I had to say, well, I'm somehow stuck or I'm in my own way or, you know, I've got something I got to deal with. So it wasn't her fault. In fact, she set me up for success. It was me. How do I take? How do I take this this uh, vision she has for me and really make make the most of it? So I've always felt obligated. I've always felt I've had unbelievable gifts and luck, and good fortune, and and all the rest of it. And uh, now, what do I do with it? And if I can't do something with it, then I gotta find out what I'm, why I'm blocked. So I have to get out of my own way. Then i have having a story about. Remember. Oh, in junior high school, I was being a goofball. I was always the cut up in class and the door was open. And one of my, a teacher who knew me very well had walked, walked down the hall. He saw me acting like a jerk. He walked into the classroom. that wasn't even his classroom, pulled me out in the hall. And he said, I see you smiling like a Cheshire cap. You've got to get on top of that. And you've got to be who you need to be. And I, I've always lived with that nice night. I was being a horse's ass. And I enjoyed the attention of hee-haw, hee-haw my classmates. But I was being a jerk. And he got, he rang my bell. And so okay. those two things I put together and I, and I, you know, the many other moments when I noticed I was, I was acting foolishly or, or being inadequate or, or whatever I was doing, tripping over my own shoelaces, um, so it works. So it works for me because now I, I, I have this great, great empathy for people who are stuck or can't, you know, they can't see the light. You know, they've got a blind spot as big as, a, you know, as, as big as a, I don't know what. And, and to help them see that help them reframe whatever it is that they're facing, help them get on with things, free them up. is the greatest joy in the world. And so, you know, where that leads me is to the job and the career and the work I've done in this world.
0: So if you think about that purpose that's yours, um, do you have a particular moment where you really felt like it truly, truly showed up and had, its, had, the, had an impact on you and others where you like, oh, wow, that's really what purpose? It's pretty personal. I would guy.
1: say a couple of things. Um, I've got two children, a daughter and a son, and they're wonderful and terrific, and they've been fully launched. And so this is not really a tale out of school. But like many parents, we experience some difficulty during their teenage years and, uh, and different, different trouble with uh, each one. Um, I won't name which one did what, but one of them uh, completely stopped working in college and, and basically was, uh, was thrown out. The other one uh was under medication for attention deficit or something or other and he took himself off the medicine because he thought it made him feel weird and he ended up in a hospital and i can i can just remember the pain and the just the awful moments that those that those situations uh caused me to experience and uh So the interpretation I have is, I've got to help them get out of their own way. And if you don't, look what happens. Young people, all the promise in the world can derail. And you don't want that. You don't want that with your kids. You don't want that with any kids. So that's one, you know, very concrete and visceral kind of period or or moment in my life, moments in my life. And uh, again, it reinforces how do you help them on track. How do you get them going? How do you get them out of their own way? And it's doubly hard when you're a parent. Um, but I can think of another uh another example kind of recently. I'm I'm uh, I think you know this uh Nick I'm I'm a patient I'm I'm in treatment for cancer and uh, so am I supposed to moan and groan about that I feel sorry for myself and feel a pity so what is that about? Um, if my purpose really is is applicable here, I've got to help others to help me get out of my own way so I can help oh others. God. And that's what you do. You You don't say, well, oh gosh, that's terrible. I am so much an open book now on that topic. And I have so many friends who have, you know, similar medical issues going on. And we just talk at levels and we relate to one another in, in, in ways that we never could ever before. And had I not gone through my own situation and thought about, well, my job is to get out of the, my own way and, and and be there for others. And this is the theme I'll play back to you in a minute. When we talk about the book and so much about how do you, how do you help yourself by helping other people?
0: Well, it's interesting because I think in some ways, uh, What I really enjoy about what you've just given us is two examples that are not work-related because most people go right to the worky-worky side. Think about the impact of purpose, and the truth is purpose impacts all parts of our life, and as we bring it to all those parts, it has a positive impact. Now, in some ways, helping people get out of their own way, uh, see how that would be uh, very applicable to being in the OD space organizational development space well yes
1: and also just and in work here's here's how i interpret it when you're as you know when you're independent person you're self-employed you've got your own you know you've got a uh your own business to manage and uh what i've learned is i'm in my own way when i'm attaching my ego to my bottom line and thinking i have to you know i have these goals to hit and all this sort of stuff and, uh, and I end up in situations where I'm not really the best person to do the work, or I'm doing work that, that is completely draining, and to unhook from that. I've, getting my own way there is, is again, is, is being co- too identified with some, with some yeah. external measure. Uh, and I've noticed that when I don't do that, I'm much more helpful as an OD person and as a coach. I, I'm more direct, I speak the truth, I'm not fearful, and, and the good work or the work I should be doing is there and the work that I shouldn't be doing goes
0: away. And it's, Interesting. it's a much
1: better way to live.
0: It's so a much better way to live. Now you also had a number of corporate roles. And if you think of those corporate roles, do you see a particular situation where you feel like purpose really showed up and had an impact on how you were able to play it when you were on the inside?
1: Well, right. I can remember uh, in in one of my uh, assignments, um, we were, you know, safety is always a big issue, number one issue in in corporate life, um, always has been and needs to be. And I can remember a, a, a big rollout in a big corporation of a safety program. And I, just something inside of me said, we're not getting there because I think our leaders are mouthing the words and they don't really We're not going to get there this way. We turn the keys over to some outside group who's training everybody and all these kinds of things, and it's not going to work. And so I raised my hand. I'm a pest, actually. And, uh, uh, to the point where I look back upon it and said, I could have gotten fired. Um, well, I didn't. Um, but I do think that I've made an impact and I do think leaders said, Hey, this is about us. This isn't about some, you know, again, training. And, uh, and we got to grab this thing and live it ourselves. And if we're going to ask about safety in meetings every time we have a meeting, then we got to believe that it makes a difference and not read some script. So, um, so that's an example, right? I, I got out of my own way. I don't really like conflict. I don't really like becoming a jerk. Uh, I've done that before. Um, but I, But I knew I had to stand up and do something, or the safety program was going to be it was going to be suboptimal and maybe someone could get hurt as a result of something missed. So, um, that's an example. Um, I can think of others when I was in the compensation role where I had to stand up often. I want to, <laughs> my, my, perspective is organizations underpay people at high levels, especially women. And I'm often saying, no, you're using the wrong standard when you think about, this should be the pay level when they're looking around at where they are today and how much more money that would be and how happy they would be as they got this big raise. I'm saying that isn't the question. The question is how do you compare jobs and people and, and what you do that's fair and right. And the whole idea of equity, uh, I think is a very big one in corporations and it's one that's not often addressed. And, uh, again, you, one has to stand up if you're in an HR role and, uh, and, and not sit down until, until you're,
0: some days until you won the day. That's great. So in some ways, that's really how you live your purpose is taking on those challenging topics that are not politically easy, but really matter. No, they're not. Well, thank you. So Harry, what I want to do is uh, shift and have us have a conversation around leading in times of crisis. Harry's uh, the author of a book that I uh, mentioned at the beginning, Navigating an Organizational Crisis. And my sense is that at this moment in time, as we look at the coronavirus epidemic as it unfolds, depending upon what industry you're in, you're fully in a crisis, or you are in some, an industry that is preparing for the possibility, which is as bad because you have actually no idea what's really going to happen. Uh, Ari, I would love for you to just uh, share with us some of the key insights that you have discovered from the, your journey of working with leaders and interviewing leaders on how do you thrive versus just survive in these crazy times, times that we're in now.
1: Um, I think it's a big question, especially now. Uh, may I say just a, a sentence or two about how I got into this topic? Uh, I I got into it because a friend of mine who was uh, Martha Johnson, who was the head of the General Service Administration, in fact, she was the highest ranking woman in the U.S. in terms of the size of the organization that she was running, and um, on a technicality that it turns out wasn't even that, uh, she got thrown out of office because uh, uh, the Obama administration was so nervous about, oh, we don't have any criticism of any of our agencies. That's, this seems like such old fashioned news now compared to where we are. Um, So she was, she, you know, she had the the cardboard box treatment and then she got hauled hauled before Congress and grilled. It was horrendous. And uh, as her friend, we were friends at Commons and we are friends to this day, I began, we began to talk about this and the way forward for her I think, and for us, for I was sharing her misery, was to talk to other people, and say, "Well, hold it, Martha. Let's 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 expand the network here and see if other people have had similar awful situations like this." And so we agreed, and we began. We went out and interviewed people. We ended up interviewing something like sixty leaders, and looked for patterns. And uh, we found some patterns. Uh, one pattern is every leader has had a crisis. Every leader has had a traumatic experience at home at work and they, and most of these uh, they recover from, they, they, they grow from, and they don't take them down. But a lot of these things are near misses. And some leaders wouldn't talk to us because they, they it was too painfully still. Uh, some were in tears. So we knew we were on to something, and uh, what we were on to was to say, let's talk about those, you talk about crucible moments talk about a crucible moment when you know you're the leader you're in charge you can't run out the door you can't resign you're it now now play out the story so we we talk to people and it turns out that there's a literature of crisis management out there that's voluminous and it's right now you can imagine it's growing by the moment thanks to coronavirus how to handle it how to handle it Well, if you look at that literature, what you find is it's management, it's not leadership. It's not about the leader. It's not about the people in the organization except what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And here are the rules and here are some good practices. It turns out that leaders are in a a double bind when a crisis sets. Here's what I mean. First of all, they're in charge of the organization. They're held accountable. They cannot hide They are being looked at and they are looked at with some blame because if it's a crisis, it's the leader's job, by the way, to keep us safe. And if we're not safe, then the leader has not done her job right. So that's part one of the bind. The other part is leaders are human beings too. And so if there's a crisis, there's a trauma, they're suffering, they've got to get through it as well. And how do they separate the two? and how, or combine the two, or, or make a synthesis. And so one of the big lessons is you don't you don't become stone-faced and, and hide all of your misery from the organization when you're being affected as well. If there's a death, if there's a tragedy, if there's something really awful that's happened, um, you're affected too. And if you pretend otherwise, you're not helping. So the question is, how do you share your feelings with the organization, yet also provide meaning and truth? Is what people want to hear, so that's what we found. And uh, again, big gap between the leadership literature on the one hand, and then the management or crisis management
0: literature on the other. So, so let me see if I understand. Because you know, a lot of us have been brought up with the belief that in a crisis, you want somebody who has the John Wayne sort of our orientation of everything's fine. It's sort of. And you're saying something different. You're saying that um, it's okay to show your feelings, that actually that's what people really need, is to know that it's okay to have those feelings as well. That when the leader has it, it makes it easier for everybody else. But that feels a little different than what the normal um, narrative is. Is that correct?
1: Well, I think you're onto it. Um, so here's a question for a leader. Um, you know, If something bad happens, can I cry? Or can I get mad? Can I point the finger? Can I, you know, how many degrees of freedom in my range of emotions, and my range of display am I allowed to have? Um, it comes back to work that you've done for many, many years, Nick, and that is got to be authentic. you got to be who you are. You gotta re, you know, you've got to be authentic in the moment, in the situation, and with yourself. And when you're authentic, you're allowed a much broader range of emotion than you think you have. You don't have to be on Mount Rushmore. You can be a real person, and what that does is it frees other people up to acknowledge and to experience the feelings they're having too. And so, when you bring the organization down to that human-to-human level, you've got a much better shot at at handling the next thing that's going to happen to you.
0: So, you, you know, last time we talked, Harry, uh, you mentioned both Bush and Obama and a couple of situations where they both did that. Would you be willing to share those? Because I thought those were helpful to me to understand what you were saying. Because initially, as you were saying it, I was like, wait a minute, is, is that really, is that really the right way to do it?
1: Well, right. I'm um, uh, Bush, I remember standing in a pile of rubble after 9-11 and being mad. Um, Obama, I can remember, um, uh, Crying after after the shootings in the uh, uh, school in Connecticut.
0: So, why do you think that was okay for them to show those emotions? Because you normally, when you think of presidents outside of our current scenario, you tend to see them as sort of trying to look like everything's okay, even if it isn't.
1: Right. We have a lot of that right now. Uh, With the Obama case, it's completely consistent to what we all know about the man that he would feel deeply. He'd feel. Okay. Like He'd feel awful, he, he would think about his own children, and he'd be touched. And so this wasn't, these weren't fake tears. We, we knew this was consistent, and it was consistent with the moment. We were all feeling dreadful at that okay. time. And with Bush, um, we see this guy, as a guy who can get angry. Um, we've, 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 uh, he's hinted at it, he was hinted at it at press conferences and so forth. And this was a time when it was appropriate to be angry. And we That's say, right. yeah, this exactly. And I remember how wonderful I felt in that moment too, connected to him, connected to everybody else who felt the same thing. And I think that began, that, that moment uh, helped, helped us turn the tide and, and sort of regain our footing. So, um, now neither was planned so to speak. I mean, uh, neither had advisors say, now I want you to go off and show this emotion. That's not what leaders do. They don't listen to people who tell them to do that anyway. They fire them.
0: But as we stand here in the coronavirus environment, we think about leading an organization. I have an organization that I run as well. You know, The ability to share our fears or our doubts and let other people, give other people permission to share those so that they don't take us over what I'm hearing you say, but we're able to be authentic in expressing these. It's not like we're lost in them. Well, here, I think we're able to have them.
1: Yes, you're able to have them. And I think the truth is right now is that we're in a time where we don't have all the answers. We don't know. There's confusion. Okay. There is lack lack, lack of facts and data. And let's admit that uh, okay. let's not say we have the answers and I'll get back to you later with what to do with them. That people know better.
0: People know better. So what are some other things that you discovered when you did this research that would be helpful to leaders on how do they deal with leading in, crisis in this moment?
1: Well, a, a couple of things. Um, uh, one of them is, and, and I, one of the phrases that I picked up along the way in this research, um, uh, is tell the truth and tell it fast and that is um you tell the truth as you know it the truth of your experience as a leader don't go mute and say i'll get back to the organization in a couple of days when i have better answers speak now and say this is how this is my take uh and and then when your take changes maybe in an hour go back and say here's a new one and keep at it, keep telling the truth and telling it fast. You're not being held accountable for being accurate moment to moment. You're, you're being held accountable for saying what you know, telling the truth of your experience and being authentic to people. That's what they want to hear and if they have better information they 'll tell you that opens up by the way channels to so maybe you do, you don 't have all the information, and oh, it says you 're welcome to hear it. And the more, more you 're engaging people, people feel a part of the story it 's not mm-hmm. an outside story that 's coming out it 's a story that they 're inside, and that's what that 's the experience that you want
0: so it 's more of an ongoing dialogue as opposed to a one way communication is what I feel like you're talking. And it's a
1: shared story. Is it's a shared story. story.
0: Okay. I think so it's that's unfolding it. and it's a shared story. You're not waiting for the package version. I think we've all gotten to the place where nobody wants to see a package presentation because we're like, well, how many people touched it? Right, which means I can't trust it. Okay, what are some other key insights? Because I think you had a number of them when I talked with you last. And I think were just very powerful for people to get a sense of.
1: Well, um, one of them is that there's no substitution for you, the leader. You can't delegate stuff. If if uh, if there's been a terrible accident, someone's in the hospital, don't tell your HR person to go make that visit. You go. Um, if there's uh, if if a factory is burned down, you be there. If if uh, if you're you've got a war room set up and you're trying to m- understand a virus or something like that, or what do we do? Be in that room. Um, so there's, you, you cannot delegate uh, the ultimate authority. That's a mistake uh, uh, when people, when leaders think that they can. They, they, maybe they're uncomfortable. Well, so what? You know, this is yours. Here's the thing about about this point. Um, and I think I've just said, people expect you to keep them, keep them safe. And when things go off the rails, you are are you're being blamed, whether you feel like you deserve to be blamed or not. You are being blamed, and so that's as I think about it in baseball terms, that's one strike. Now, if if uh, you then hem and haw, or you try to make things nice, or you turn the bad news over to someone else to talk for you, or you wish you a memo with Q and A talking points, or you do something else that's or you talking facts and data instead of what's really going on and meaning and people? Then that's strike two.
0: Okay. I
1: can't trust you now. You're you're running. You've got two strikes against you now, and you're you run your trust scale all the way down. You know, you run out of trust. And I don't think leaders get that the crisis is about their leadership as much as it's about the crisis
0: because that's what people are gonna remember, aren't they? So one of my questions is, since this is the Leading From Purpose podcast is, so where do you see that purpose having a role for a leader in crisis?
1: Well, um, and I will tell this story about, uh, uh, one of the stories in the, it's one of the stories in the book, um, about a man who was in charge of Intergy Corporation during Katrina. Now, we're talking a lot about Katrina again right now, You know how it was handled or mishandled, and, yep. and, and frankly, how it came out of the blue. The Army Corps of Engineers did not expect what happened in New Orleans, and, and all the docs in the country did not expect this coronavirus to be doing what it's doing. So we have a, a situation on our hands that's, that's unexpected. We call this a rogue wave, and it's not something you can sort of say go blame. Uh, somebody on. I mean, uh, there are these events in life um, that that does take over. Now the question.
0: So like is, a a rogue wave, in, uh, is is what? Just. Well, here's a rogue wave. Um, what does in, that mean? In scientific, sort of meteorological
1: terms, uh, you can be on an open ocean, a blue sky, and calm weather, and a light shop and then suddenly there's a wave that's too times taller than any normal height of the largest wave that you're going to get arrives. And and you've got to face it. And the only thing you can hope for is that the bow of your ship is facing the wave, Because if, if it hits your broadside, you're spinning around like a top. Uh, and you also hope that your ship can take it. So that's a rogue wave. You can't predict okay. them.
0: And so it feels like remember. the coronavirus really is a rogue wave then. Or it's
1: the- a rogue wave.
0: Hurricane is a rogue wave. Yeah,
1: it completely is a rogue wave. Uh, Katrina blew up in a way that nobody had expected. So we, here's uh, his name is Rod West, and uh, um, he was the head of operations at uh, at Entergy uh, for um, for New Orleans uh, when this thing hit. And the first thing he did after Katrina had had, had passed through was get in a helicopter. And, and see what damage had been done and look down on the city. Well, he's up in a helicopter and is, and, and looking down and not understanding what he's seeing because he's seeing flooded houses everywhere. And he, he didn't know what they were. When it finally dawned on him, and, and, and here he is, it's, he's stunned, his helicopter pilot, who had been a, 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 a Iraqi war veteran, was crying. And, and he realized he had to come down and tell the truth and tell it fast to his team. Now he had sent all of the people who are gonna turn the lights back on, and that's both gas and electricity, to Baton Rouge out of, out of harm's way, so he could rally them there and then bring them back in the city to, 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 to save the city. Sure. So he knew he's in his helicopter, he's gotta to fly to Baton Rouge, he's gotta meet his team and tell them, and give them instructions as what to do. So, and I've done this exercise with groups. And I asked the question, what would you, you're Rod West now, what would you tell the team? And I would tell you, Nick, and this is not, this is not a great result. Most people in these workshops will say stuff like, well, you have to say, well, you know, we're looking into it. Uh, if there's any problem here, we'll get the insurance people to help you. Uh, we've got an HR person standing by. Um, we're not really sure what we saw. You know, this kinds of stuff that's not what Rod did. Rod came into the room. He saw people waiting with bated breath to hear what he was going to say. Cause he was, a, CNN hadn't taken pictures yet. So nobody knew what the damage was. Right. And he walked in and he said, I have some news for you on what I've seen. And I, he said, uh, the city of new Orleans is nine feet under water. And that means for everyone in this room or most of the people in this room, your houses are nine feet under water. Wow! You can imagine what that would be. Now, that's a, that's a jolt of truth that, that you say, how could a leader do that to people? Well, that's what was needed for them to understand that Rod was on their side. Rod was not going to bullshit. And they were going to do something here that, to save New Orleans. Because that, that was his ask. We have to go and save New Orleans. And I'm not letting you out to go f- save your house or save your grandmother, we gotta save the city. And almost without exception, that's what they did. They signed up, they realized they had a larger mission, they realized that they were on the truth, they realized that Rod was with them, and he was gonna lead the way, and, and off they went. So the question is, how could Rod have have pulled this off, this remarkable, remarkable story of communication and courage? Well, it turns out Rod, didn't come into this thing unprepared. He, uh, uh, as a child, his, his elementary school teachers thought this kid has got leadership beyond his his years. Um, when he was age 30, his father was killed suddenly by a, a falling tree and, and Rod it really, it really caught him up short and he had to understand what leadership is. And he turned to, believe it or not, the whole idea of servant leadership and as a way to as a way to 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 cope with these situations, be a servant. You can't. You can mourn the loss of your father. You can honor the loss of your dad if you're going to be if you're going to help other people. It also turns out that Rod uh, was a citizen of New Orleans. He'd gone to Notre Dame and played on Lou Holtz's national championship team, and uh, the motto of that team was "Win." W i n, which was stood for "What's important now." Really.
0: Oh interesting.
1: And so he had all of this sort of inside him already, this 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 belief in him from a teacher, this 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 crucible experience of death his father, this wonderful coach who was on his side and, and what he had learned on the on the gridiron. And so he came into this thing, really, if you will, uh, and he had a, a happy marriage and he was dedicated to Rollins and and all the rest of it. He believed in the company, he's still there. Um, and uh, so he was, he was preset. Now, what I, one of the realizations that we have here is that um, we invented a word. We called it pre-resilience. There's an awful lot of, resiliency is important. Readiness is one thing. Readiness, are you? can you handle it? Resilience is, can you get through it? Well, what's pre-resilience? It's, this, it's
0: the reserve you have. You may, you, you may not know it, but it's sitting there waiting for you. Oh, that's really interesting. So what you think is that because of his challenging life experiences, we usually call those crucibles and some of the work we, we do in Authentic Leadership, and the journey he'd been on with working with people who had a real sense of purpose and him tasting what purpose felt like, that his reserve was much greater than other people. So when that crisis happened, he had the reserve to tap into
1: he had reserved to tap into and this is why and i'll and i'll i'll put up another another pitch in for the work that you do nick and that is to get people to wake up and to understand who they are understand what's going on what they come in with now it's important to sharpen it it's important to reflect on it it's important to distill it. That's why I think purpose is when you come out of your workshop, you've distilled something that stands for a whole lot of other stuff. But okay. it's a distillation. That you, it's a placeholder. Interesting. It's a door that opens up into your whole reserve.
0: I mean, I never, thought, exactly. I never thought about this. It's really interesting Harry, as you talk about it. And, you know, this is my your gift to me over the many years is that whenever we have a conversation like this, I think like, there's always this big aha that I have. I'm like, oh, okay, this makes complete sense. And why did not I see this before? The, the power of owning the reserve and being able to have it and leverage it when you need it. And if you don't think you have it, because you know the research on um, stress is very similar. The research on stress shows that what causes you to be in the fight or flight mode, which is the part of stress we hate, or the challenge response, which is what Tom Brady did a couple of years ago when he won the Super Bowl against the Falcons. You know, that's the challenge response where you just take it and you run with it. And the difference is that when you believe you don't have the resources internally, you go to fight or flight mode. And when you do believe you have the resources, which is always an internal narrative anyway, you make it happen. And in some ways it's what a coach does to a football team and what it has halftime, Speech always matters. Is it's the question as to does he get him to access the reserve? And I think what's interesting is that in the case of Rod, it sounds like he was really good at accessing his reserve, but not just that, but he was great at helping everybody else access their reserve.
1: Well, you're on. You're on to this to a, the virtuous cycle of all of this, and I think this is. Uh, uh, as important as anything to talk about today. Uh, and that is, uh, let me give you another example of, of a, a, a different example of a, of a crisis situation. I've been uh, working more and more with um, um, with the healthcare community, which is under, was under stress before the coronavirus. Um, sure. burnout uh, is I've heard 50% of the healthcare of healthcare workers are suffering burnout. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's for all kinds of reasons, um, but but suicide is way up among doctors. really? Uh, it's, it's the highest professional group, I mean, the highest rate among professional groups. Um, and uh, so I was talking to a doctor about this, and doctors take mistakes very seriously. and it's not like, oh yeah, I missed that, missed that uh, diagnosis or that treatment <laughs> that was wrong. I'll go right. home and you know have a cocktail I' be good. Uh, that's not. That's not what doctors are. They, they live with it. And so I asked the doctor, what do, you, what do you do when you made a mistake and you know you made a mistake? And here's the key point, and this, this, this moves me to even say this because it's so simple. Just I go sit on a, on a bedside and I hold the patient's hand. Hmm. You know, what's the wisdom here? What's going on? He's getting out of himself. He's providing service to others he's exercising compassion. Not just he feels for the person in the bed, he's actually doing something for that person in the bed. Now you say, well, what's going on here? Well, that's how he is help. He's doing self-help, self-healing. That's how he's taking care of himself. So a big thing in all of this is not just what Rod West did in his, in his moment of glory, but how did he take care of himself afterwards?
0: So how did he take Ross, care of himself? Because I, I guess his house was underwater too, right? Say that again. How did he take care of himself during Katrina? Because I would assume that his house was underwater just like everybody else's.
1: Well, his house wasn't underwater, but he was barricaded in a hotel downtown living on a cot and his family was away and he had no contact with them. Um, and, uh, he was, you can imagine the kind of sleepless nights he was experiencing, caring for the city as as deeply as he did, caring for his workers, caring for his job and his family. And, uh, so a couple of things there um the phrase we used here it's an old one but it's the idea of uh, of a dark night of the soul hmm. and leaders right now you can imagine how many doctors right now already coming in burnt out and now seeing how we are um, handling the corona coronavirus uh, coronavirus we're not
0: handling the coronavirus we're not handling it
1: and uh this isn't just a matter of, of uh, do no harm this is also a matter for many doctors, it's a matter—it's a moral question, which is eating them up. How do they handle this? And and then the worst of all is how do they handle it when their colleagues are affected? In other words, yeah. how do they take care of of their co-workers, not just their patients? Um, well, the the what I'm reading and what I'm understanding is how, how important compassion is, and that's the, that's the virtuous cycle. You help So what others. is
0: compassion as opposed to like empathy? Because those two words I know are- Yeah, yeah good. Thank Simply you.
1: empathy is like, is, Nick, I, I, I feel your pain. Um, compassion is, Nick, I'm, I'm gonna get close to you. I'm gonna find out what's going on. Uh, I'm gonna be there with you. You're gonna know I'm around. And if there's something I can do, I'm going to
0: do it. In other words, compassion compassion. has an active element to it. Correct. But the, is just letting you know that I feel for you. You may not even have to let
1: you know, but you know, people, I, I'm so empathetic about those poor people, uh, and, you know, stuck on that, on that boat, uh, off the coast of San Francisco right now. Yeah, I got empathy for that. But compassion would be if you're close to the scene to be doing something. It'd be actually. Uh, or be so It seems
0: like that would just burn me out even more, Harry. So how does that for these people help them? Well, how does it help them build that reserve back? Because I would think that if we look at crisis, if we look at normal life, the ones that most of us live in, is there's a ebb and a flow, and you got your weekends and your cocktails and everything sort of balances out, and you go on vacation, it makes it bigger, and you go back to work, it makes it smaller, but you sort of whatever... And now we all of a sudden put everybody in this intensive pressure cooker where we don't know where the end game is. And it's like, sh- 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 sh. so as, how does compassion actually do this?
1: Well, here's the, the burnout is when you're feeling compromised morally or professionally. The burnout is when you don't feel the agency. You can't do anything about the situation you're in. Um, and you're, you're completely flummoxed. Um, And that's why compassion is a breakout from that. It breaks out of that loop.
0: So there's actually research that was done on doctors at uh, University of Buffalo, where they took uh, a a large number of doctors who were showing signs of uh, depression. And if they look at the scale on the 1 to 20 ratio, 1 to 20 number, uh, the lower the number is, the higher the sense of possibility of depression. And most of them were like at an 8 or a 7. And what they did is they put them through uh, a six week uh, process in which basically they helped them step in a couple hours a week and look at what had they done that week that was the most meaningful for them. And what was interesting is is when they actually had to acknowledge where it was the most meaningful moment for them, which I would bet was the moment where the compassion piece, piece showed up as well, Harry. So I'm sort of putting two to two together as I'm thinking about this research. When they looked at the, the data uh, about three months later, and they, they scored them again, all, all the doctors had scores that were like 18, 19 and 20. Right. This had had such a huge impact on reframing the, the, the actions that they had been taking had not changed. No, no, they hadn't changed any of the steps they were taking or any other routine to some degree. But what they had done is actually reflected on where the meaning was, which, in some sense, what you're saying that I think really is helpful to me is, is, it's like, how do you put oxygen back in? Is you know this natural ability for us to not just have meaning but to experience the meaning as we are interacting with someone and showing compassion? Why do people do uh, go do nonprofit things uh, on their free time? Is because it it's like it's what creates more oxygen for us. And so in crisis, it's like, how do we take care of taking care of others? It seems like you'd want to just take care of yourself. You go to Costco, you buy your your cans of tuna and your toilet paper, and you just lock yourself up in a room someplace. But you're saying something that is the opposite, which is you need to be buying the the cans of tuna and the toilet paper for all your colleagues and friends (laughs) who didn't do any planning so that you can help take care of them when all hell breaks loose.
1: Well, I am indeed. How do you get out of your own bubble? And how do you get into, um, how do you shift uh, the grounds? How do you uh, get a new lease on life? And you do that with other people.
0: Interesting. I mean, as you're saying is Harry, you know, it's interesting how this all makes darn sense, but it all seems very counterintuitive. Uh,
1: this is why it's not in the literature well,
0: no, and so you know what I like about the rod story is that it sort of feels visceral, which is he sounds like one of the doctors in China, which is he's sleeping in a cot he Yes, what's going to happen next he's going to take care of everybody right. so how does it turn out for him because you sort of tell us the beginning of the story, but I'm not sure we know what the sort of how did it how did it, how All right.
1: did it so it's a long it's a long story one of the things you have to look at is what happened in New Orleans and uh, um, uh, ultimately New Orleans did get its lights turned back on. If you've been back to New Orleans since Katrina, you can see progress. It's not the perfect city, but they have a, they put a new school system. Uh, they've got, they have an awful lot of, 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 things that can point to as progress and things they've fixed since Katrina. So one of the things you have to think about is how do you turn, uh, a crisis or a catastrophe into something that, that over time is redemptive, is, is where things are better. And, uh. And Rob is a part of that story. He's also personally benefited. He's been promoted once or twice, I think, since then. Um, he's risen to a, a, a very senior role in Entergy. In, uh, um, and uh, uh, another part of all this that we need to talk about is the question of story. And, uh, uh, and I, I think I, I briefly said, if, if a leader thinks his job is to spew facts and data, and let people draw their own conclusions. Um, I think that's a a, that's a miss. Um, people want to have meaning. They want to hear your meaning. They want to they they connect the dots. They want to know how you're in the story too. It's not, these aren't just abstract sure. things that you're reading off and telling people what to do. Um, and uh, that's the stuff that they will tell and then retell. And then they'll get retold. And what you're really doing is building social capital with story. You're getting, you're getting, uh, people talking to one another. So my, our leader said this, and this is what I think about that. Then that gets retold and the next thing gets retold. And next thing, you know, you've got a community, not just a bunch of people in an organization. And, uh, and they're providing, they're making meaning out of it, which is really the missing piece that falls out. Like right now, it's so hard for us with the coronavirus to make meaning. What is it, where did it come from? Where's it gonna go? What does it mean right now? We're not getting any help on that and so we're all kind of making stuff up. I've had conversations with, with friends of mine and you have too. And it's amazing the range of sort of reaction and and perspective they have on it. I have some friends saying, ah, let's just forget about it, making too much of it and others are in complete panic mode. And uh, so, the meaning function right now has dropped out. And, and seeing a bar chart of how many people are sick today, is just, that's, that's not helping. That's not enough. Um, I don't want to disguise that stuff, but, but uh, we, we need to understand uh, where this goes and what's happening in other countries and what our efforts are and, and what might we do and, and why this is important and why this is different from other things and all that kind of stuff is important to us. And that's a job of here's another phrase we uh we came up with. The leader's job is storyteller in chief. Hmm. You can't, you know, it you're you're that. Um, you're the authority, and the same word means author.
0: Yeah, so absolutely. And, 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 an author is, is also at its core, yes, that's great. And the other thing um, is story implies restore, Restore. Oh, I'm I like that so, well.
1: So all of, that, all of that says, even if you're uh, uh, someone who is not inclined to, to venture far from the facts and data, um, and you're the leader, um, even the slightest movement from your normal pattern, as people know you, will make a big difference. So s- storytelling is a very, it's as natural to people as breathing. And I don't like it when leaders say, oh, yeah, I don't want to tell a story, I'm not good at that. Well, yes, you are. And we need you now. We need you to put yourself into the situation because you're one of us and we're one of you. And uh, it's that knitting together part. It's that, that, uh, that connecting all of us and letting us be ourselves and also being a part of the whole.
0: That's beautiful because I, you know, I really agree with you. And um, I think that when people say, what does this mean to somebody? It's a leadership moment because the answer you give is the, it creates a reality. And the question is, what's the story that you're telling? And I do know that if I say, well, here's what it means, and you just use the data, and if you tell a story of your own personal life and say, well, let me tell you a little bit about my own experience of dealing with crazy moments and what's happened. And here's some thoughts about how you might think about what you want to do with this. I think we get to something that's more personal but it also allows us to share some of our feelings in a way that might be safe as well. And I think that's part of what we need to be able to talk through. I think that in these times of greater crisis, the more we talk about our own journey and our own moments in crisis where we have been humbled and where we were freaked out, but truth is that we didn't have a reason to be or that things turned out in a better way or it turned out as to whatever, and we had to sort of take a left or right turn. I think that's some an insight that uh, both, I think, you and I, Harry, have uh, worked with people on, but I think it's really important. So here's the thing. I I believe that some of the things you've been talking about, that they are extremely helpful to me personally in this moment in time. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you, Harry, was I was a bit selfish, which is I wanted to give you a chance to unpack some of this deep wisdom that you have so that I could get the, benefit of it and I hope that anybody who's listening to the podcast is able to get some, there's a lot more insights in my experience from having read the book that uh, just, cause there's a lot of things to think about when you think about what does it mean to lead in a time of crisis and who am I in that context? I do think one exercise for everybody who's listening is to go th- think about the write to story of when you've been most challenged in your life or write two or three of those stories and look at how you dig yourself out, and there's a pattern there. And that's the gift that will always take care of you. It's probably as connected to purpose as anything, is it's how you dig yourself out of those. And that's your version of how you do it, because you know what? Each one of us has a different way of doing it. And so, um, Harry, uh, as always, one of the things I like to do at the end of this podcast is ask if you have a particular quote that you feel that really speaks to you and for you to share it with us, and then what does that quote mean for you?
1: <laughs> I do. Let me, uh, and, and uh, I sent it on to you before the, the podcast, but I want to see if I can, and uh, I wrote it down, because it's one of my
0: favorites. Um, <laughs> it's one of your, it's the problem with one of your favorites is that you forget it.
1: it are, are there so many? Yeah, Some place, right, Harry? But this is so important. I want to absolutely get right, Well, I'll just tell you what it is. Um, and that is um, self-development is a higher duty than 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 uh, self-sacrifice for a leader.
0: Okay, so what does that mean for you?
1: It means that um, it's not it, leaders who who uh, who think their job is to uh, is to uh, uh, just rush into battle and uh, come what may uh, uh, risk all, if you will. That's not the point of leadership. We need you to stay alive. We need you to take care of yourself. We need you to do whatever you've got to do to grow in your job. We, we're, your growth is important to us. Your own individual leadership growth is important to all of us. And that's what's important. And, uh, um, and I'll say one more thing too about all this. There's an opportunity in a crisis for leader that all this is not taken up. And, uh, and that is this. Um, that uh, in a crisis, people expect you to behave differently. So if you suddenly, if you suddenly come out with a new a new way of behaving and, and, and emoting, and you've got some new plans, and you're showing up with the people more than you ever have before, that's expected. That's like, oh wow, he that person is responding in a crisis the way we would want. Um, you've got some you, the the old bounds you think you have around you are, have been broken. Take the opportunity, people expect it, and be all you can be. Be authentic, but, but uh, take off your, you know, uh, the whatever restraints you feel you have. Get out of your own way, I would say, and, and lead.
0: Beautiful, Harry. Well, Harry, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your insights with me. Uh, you and I have worked with each other for a long period of time. And I remember once getting on an airplane and this guy sits next to me, looks at me, says, you know, you look really familiar. Do you know Harry Hudson? Because he looks like he could be your older brother. And I just laughed so hard. And it happened like two or three times around the world where people, and if I was to wear your, your your glasses, people would be really going, oh my goodness, you guys, are you guys really? I do feel like in many ways, Harry, that you are my older, older brother. And in this moment, in this conversation today, I feel like I was a student of some beautiful wisdom that you brought to us today. So I wanna thank you for bringing the gift of your purpose to all of us.
1: Well, I'm, I'm on fire on this stuff, Nick. And uh, I have a lot, an awful lot to uh, thank you for on my journey. So uh, this is Two Way Street. Great.
0: So I wanted to uh, wish you all a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to another Leading From Purpose podcast. <laughs>